Welcome to SBC This Week. I'm Brandon Porter. Laura Erlinson is here with me. Laura, how was your holiday break? It was really great. <laughs> Good. Uh, I am still a little foggy-headed, mm-hmm. I think. I took a little too much time off. <laughs> it's hard to get back in the swing, but I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah. And uh, it's cold outside. It is yeah. cold. It is. It is winter in the How was your break? It was good. Yeah. Same, same, same as what you said. Uh, it's hard to know what day of the week it is still. Yeah. Struggling yeah. there just a little bit. Um, but the, the kids are back in school and we are rolling forward here into the new year. The break was was really good, though. It was a good time with family and uh, some good time to to rest and be together. Yes, I was singing uh, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year to my kids the other day, and I emphasized the line, Mom and Dad can hardly wait for school to start again. That's and right. They were like, is that really true? And I said, <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think probably for my kids, there might have been some time when they were ready for school to start again. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, uh, for those of you listening, hopefully you had a wonderful Christmas break and it started off to a fantastic new year. We're so thankful that, that you have joined us for SBC this week and uh, just your faithful listening and uh, walking through um what, what's in store, uh, what the Lord has for us as we look out toward a new year. And Laura, as we think about this new year, we begin it in the very first week with some hard news, some things that, that folks have um, known was coming. Specifically, we're thinking about Junior Hill and about his passing this week, um, his promotion. I, I just feel if if anyone, if it's fitting for anyone to, to use that phrase for them, his promotion to heaven, um, even as much as his family, I'm sure they're grieving and I know that they're hurting, but um, but I, I know that they're celebrating as well um, as he is now with Jesus. Yeah, I uh, I was telling you this the day that we ran his obituary that um, even though it's sad, these are such encouraging stories to mm-hmm. read mm-hmm. because he just was faithful to the end and no one had a bad thing to say about him that I ever mm-hmm. heard. Yeah, I never got to hear him preach, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, even when he was at this, I'm sure at the pastors' conference a time or two when I was there, yeah. I was always working, yeah. so I don't. I was never in the room. Uh, but he was just a legend. Everybody mm-hmm. knew who he was. Uh, maybe, maybe second only to Billy Graham as the most well-known Southern Baptist evangelist, traveling yeah. evangelist, and yeah. a per- performer conducted more than 1,800 revivals. Wow in uh, decades of ministry and also was an SBC first vice president in 1989 mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, preached at the pastor's conference many times. The first time in 1981, um, he never tallied the results of his ministry though. He never kept uh, records of professions of faith or decisions at any of his ministry, uh, ministry events. He just said the dear Lord in heaven knows those facts and I am perfectly content to await his final report. <laughs> yeah, which is just something. I mean, I hear him saying that in his own voice, even even as you read it there. That's that's just it's a junior hillism, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Bar- Barber, SBC president Barber was was one of the many that um, put things out on social media and had various response responses in the wake of his passing. And Bar- Barber said something similar that now he's finally getting to meet how how who knows how many. Yeah. people that he helped bring into the kingdom. So 
So that was neat. And lots of people, Baptist Press had a story that was just reactions from, in, including from his wife, Carol, just some yeah. sweet comments from her about his faithfulness and how he was the same man at home that he was in the pulpit. And he never had revival meetings back to back because he always wanted to, to come home. And yeah, uh, we had reactions from New Orleans Seminary president, from both current and Chuck Kelly, the president emeritus, Jamie yeah. Dew, of course, Rick Lance in Alabama, the president of the Southern Baptist Evangelists, uh, Keith Cook, of course, Bart Barber, and then a host of others. And um, just a really bittersweet uh, announcement this week and some stories. And you you yourself told me some stories about your interactions with him. Yeah, I did. So I, I did have the opportunity to hear him preach a number of times um, um, in Kentucky and also in Alabama while, while we lived there. And I served there in some churches. And um, so it was always uh, not only helped by his sermons and and enjoyed working alongside of him in, in revivals and uh, the harvest events, but then also just just the personal interaction with him there in the local church and and always amazed at just how humble he really was. Um, he he. He didn't think too highly of himself. Um, I, I was thinking, I'll share something in just a second, but I was thinking about the the quotes that you read that, that came from his wife, Carol, and just how helpful that is um, to pastors who can so often feel burned out or to evangelists who could easily be burned out by the travel and, and the need to go, uh, the desire to go. Um, just with her saying, I never heard him say he was too tired to preach, um, even though sometimes mm-hmm. he drove through the night. But then also that quote about um, he never booked two meetings in a row because he wanted to come home. And that there was just a, a wise balance there mm-hmm. that he mm-hmm. kept between his his ministry to his family and his ministry to the local church. Mm-hmm. And um, I so appreciate that. And so so that, that kind of leads me into probably what is the most helpful thing, um, the investment that he's made in my life. And that was while I was in seminary at New Orleans. Uh, he and Dr. Kelly taught a workshop class. So one of those one week where you're in the class eight hours a day, five days in a row. Um, and it was on... It was on revivals and and ultimately I, I don't remember the title of the class, but we talked about revivals in the local church and all that that can't go into a successful revival. And then we also talked about invitation ethics. So I think that's really interesting mm-hmm. that 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 pastors who are listening will totally understand that. But maybe other folks who are not pastors, um, you, you don't think a lot about the ethics of the invitation at the end of a service. Mm-hmm. And we spent a couple of days as a group of young pastors working with Dr. Kelly and and uh, Junior Hill and uh, just really thinking through that. And they they gave uh, personal experiences and and what had formed and shaped them, and then let us ask questions and and process through things and and um and then we went out. I was sharing with you that that they took us out to lunch because um, it was a small group a, a couple of times, and uh, it was just it was so personal and and very helpful on so many different levels. And so that is really helpful because you're right. That isn't something that necessarily is discussed very often, but surely that's something every pastor has to think about at least once a week. And so very important. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, something that, that for pastors, you want to be very careful about that because Mm -hmm. you sure do not want to mislead anyone into believing that they are a Christian um, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, be a part of deceiving them into uh, 
just a, a false profession of faith. And so mm-hmm. um, it's so, so important. And it was such a, so helpful. So that, that's uh, really great. Well, we'll mm-hmm. be in prayer for his family, but uh, also just so thankful that he's now in his reward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, Laura, we also um, had our cooperative program numbers for December to come to us. And so you can find them in a story in Baptist Press. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a hi- highlights from that? Yeah, some encouraging numbers after a couple of the, the, the first couple of months of the fiscal year were a little sluggish, but um, kind of rebounded a bit. Um, the monthly giving for December was 1.48% above the budget goal. Um, year-to-date giving is still a little down just because of those first uh, couple of slow months, but it looks to be turning around. So we're still down uh, year-to-date, um, a little over 3% mm. under budget. But another encouraging sign is the the boost in designated giving. Uh, designated giving is 4.16%, just over 4% above last year. So that's, of course, our missions offerings and all uh, other sorts of designated giving. So that's encouraging. Yeah. And so just so folks know, that's a little bit more than a half million dollars um, ahead of, of where, where it was at this time last year. That's right. So, that's right. Yeah. It's, um, so, that's that's a great number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, just a, a news item to make sure that, that you're aware of, but a settlement was reached Um um, over the last week of 2023, um, in the Paul Pressler, uh, Gerald Rollins case or Dwayne Rollins case down in Houston. And um, that had been going on, what, since 2017? Is that right? No, yeah, before I believe that? so. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so for a number of years, and it has come to a resolution with all parties settling in that. And we had a statement from the EC's attorney. It says the Southern Baptist Convention and its executive committee were each fully prepared to proceed to trial. However, several factors ultimately made settlement the more prudent choice. Chief among those factors was the horrendous nature of the abuse allegations, the likelihood that counsel for the SBC and executive committee would have to confront and cross-examine abuse survivors, the executive committee's current financial condition, and the willingness of multiple insurance carriers to contribute to the terms of the settlement. And so that was the statement that we received from um, attorneys in in that who were representing the SBC and the EC. Um, Also, I guess, Laura, in in a legal uh, real estate has a legal side to it. And so mm-hmm. um, so sort of a legal story that's also a real estate story. In Georgia, uh, the mission board there has uh, reached an agreement to sell their building. Yeah, the uh, five-story office building that the Georgia Baptist Mission Board moved into uh, in the early 2000s mm-hmm. uh, finally sold. Uh, they put it on the market more than 10 years ago, and there yeah. had been uh, just red tape after red tape after red tape of trying to sell it. It was um, the city was very adamant that it had to be zoned for certain certain ways, and it was just um, it was very difficult. The yeah. sale proved to be very uh, challenging, uh, but they have finally sold it for twenty three point five million dollars um, <laughs> after searching for years for a buyer. Sold it to a hotel developer who plans to turn the property into a a boutique hotel. David Melber, who is the uh, chief operating officer there at the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, he said he spent nearly four years working with real estate brokers and attorneys 
uh, on what proved to be a difficult sale. Mm -hmm. uh, the other, they had four groups uh, uh, looking at it. The other three had to back away just because of the constraints on the property. And it looked at what he said at one point, it looked like we wouldn't even be able to sell it. It seemed unlikely that we'd be able to do it. So um, they're thankful there in Georgia. And uh, in the meantime, they've been meeting, the staff has been meeting in um, rented office space, as well as a church, Hebrew mm -hmm. Baptist church there in Decula, Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that they've sold the building, they will be looking for permanent a permanent location for the, the whole staff there. Yeah, very good. I'm sure all the folks in Decula were very happy to hear you pronounce the name of their city correctly. <laughs> hey, I have uh, some Georgia blood, so there you go. There you go. It right. She says that she has a Florida Gator blanket wrapped around her legs. So <laughs> something I can wrong. You see my blanket. It's I I saw that orange. <laughs> it's cold in here. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a couple of shades of orange that catch my attention, no matter where they are. So anyway. Um, uh, so the first week of the year, uh, as with everybody we're, we're at Baptist Press, we're just getting rolling again, and uh, folks at the entities and folks in churches are getting rolling again. And so, so as you can imagine, sometimes that means it's uh, challenging. We're, we're really looking hard to find stories during this first week of the year. And Diana Chandler caught this one um, and brought it to our attention, and then uh, she caught this study, and then she wrote a story about it that I thought was really helpful, Laura. It's interesting and and helpful. It's on uh, Black churches, and uh, Black churches suffered but were resilient during COVID, and that was a, a new study from, uh, who is it? It's Hartford uh, Research Institute, I think it's called, um, mm -hmm. came out came out with this study, and and we heard from uh, Greg Perkins at NAF, and uh, just just very helpful. Yeah, so the study showed that, of course, um, economic considerations, where people live, whether they live in a house or an apartment, whether they have to take public transportation to and from their job. Um, of course, all of those, uh, whether they even have health insurance or whether they have the ability to work from home or if they have the type of job that they have to go into a location every day, all those things, of course, played into how you were impacted by uh, the pandemic. And um, that was not evenly distributed among ethnic groups. Uh, yeah. And so the research showed that churches, uh, uh, Black and multiracial churches fared somewhat worse through the pandemic and the recovery because their people were uh, hit harder in various ways. But Greg Perkins, who is the president of the North American Af uh, National African-American Fellowship yeah. of the SBC, uh, he said that that did not prove true for many of their churches. He mm -hmm. said that their experiences more closely aligned with the overarching Anglo church performance. Uh, he said, Many churches in NAF reported not only an increase in financial resources, but even a numerical increase. And they experienced, um, uh, some of them, of course, did experience a membership or financial decline, but a lot of those maybe were already declining before the pandemic. Uh, it didn't yeah. seem that the pandemic had, maybe it exacerbated a little bit, but didn't uh, initiate, initiate it. But it was encouraging to hear from Gregory Perkins say that, Yes, of course, all churches were hit hard, but in the SBC, at least, it doesn't appear that African-American churches were hit that much harder than others. Yeah, I think that's really a testimony to our state conventions and our local associations and the support. That's a really good point. That's yeah, a really that, good they, point. that they provided to churches. Um, they they stepped up and helped in, in lots of ways. And so, Boy, I uh, tell you what, 
those months right through the shutdown, mm -hmm. um, you weren't here yet, but uh, I feel like we were all working from home, of course, but I feel like I worked longer days those yeah. three or four months than I've ever worked in my life. And a lot of that was because we were publishing so many stories yeah. about what uh, not just the government was doing to help churches, but you're right, what our state conventions were doing, what our local associations were doing, what even our seminaries were doing to help churches even like record their live streams and just example after example after absolutely. example of how we came together and helped yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was working at the Kentucky Baptist Convention during that, working with uh, churches and on that front, and then through our uh, news outlet Kentucky Today, and you know when when folks who worked in other places would talk to me about how slow it was since they were working from home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't. I, I had don't the know. opposite. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, so. I had the opposite experience. Yeah. Uh, my and my poor kids. Oh my goodness, my daughter right. was trying to do second grade online, and Mama's in front of her computer all day. And yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and just a little bit in our history moment, we're going to talk about uh, some conferences and the new year brings conferences, kind of a thing to do during the break for students. Mm -hmm. But then also as we start thinking about the winter and spring, those are conference times. And so, uh, Laura, we had a had a short story this week about the Baptist Church Music Conference that's been going on. I think what what do we say since, since 1957? 1957 yeah. was yeah. the first uh, Baptist Church Music Conference, and it's really for the three prongs of Baptist Church Music, I would say, which would be the local church, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and it would be for denominational workers, those that are that work in their state conventions or um, their associations in, in music, and then for the educational aspect, and that's for the seminaries and um, even colleges and universities, their music departments, things of that nature. Yeah. So this conference has been going on. Uh, for more than 60 years. And uh, this year, the conference is April 21st through 23rd at Forest Hills Baptist Church here in Nashville. Last year, it was in Atlanta. This year, it's in Nashville. Okay. Um, you'll hear from artists like Andrew Peterson, Matt Papa, Travis Cottrell. You'll hear from uh, Mike Harland, Kirk Kirkland, uh, Arranger Cliff Duran. Uh, names that if you're in church music, you know the names that I'm saying right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's pretty, it looks to be a pretty important conference, uh, pretty exciting conference. So you can register or get more information at sbcmc.org. Okay. sbcmc.org. So a meeting of the musical minds That's coming right. in April. One of these years, I'm going to go to this con conference. I haven't gotten to go to it, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of meeting with the minds, we had some uh, mind-stirring first persons this week um, on Baptist Press that we want folks to make sure to take note of. They were certainly thought-provoking. And so um, while we don't normally mention first persons on SBC this week, these two specifically, uh, I think, are worthy of of mention. Yeah, interesting. And you're right, thought-provoking um, first persons. I'll start with uh, one written that we ran yesterday. We're recording this on Friday, but this uh, ran on Thursday in Baptist Press by Malcolm Yarnell at Southwestern and mm -hmm. Steve McKinnon at Southeastern, mm -hmm. who wrote this together. And it's just sort of an analysis on Baptists and confessionalism, um, creeds and confessionals and what what those mean for Baptists, how they have used them over the centuries and how they have changed or how they adhere to them or don't adhere to them and how they use them. Very, very interesting. Um, I'll just read a little part of it here. We believe confessions are necessary for Baptists because they are necessary to how we express the Christian faith. 
We also believe they have subordinate authority in the churches because Christ rules over his congregations as they gather under his word. Mm. So that's just a hint of that first person. And then the other one was uh, written by Nathan Finn, who is our SBC recording secretary and also there at North Greenville University in South Carolina. And his was called uh, Commending Classical Evangelicalism. Yeah. And it is sort of uh, a defense of the term evangelical, I would mm-hmm. say. Would you think, would you say I that's agree. a fair Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he lists what the term evangelical means. And um, I'll list a few of these here. He says evangelicals are committed to what is often called the great tradition of Christian orthodoxy, they affirm reformational perspectives on scripture and salvation. They believe the Bible is God's trustworthy written words for humanity and that those words are enough to guide us in our spiritual flourishing. Um, They believe, uh, they acknowledge that the heart of Jesus' saving work on the cross is his penal substitutionary atonement on behalf of sinners. And that's just a few. And he goes on from there. Um, Very interesting, very encouraging. um, And like you say, uh, thought provoking. So yeah, I commend both of those to our listeners. Yeah, I think Nathan's piece is very helpful for um, pastors and church leaders who would want their folks in the church to understand what it means to be an evangelical, Mm -hmm. because we hear that term used so much in the news media right now, especially coming in, coming into a 2024 when the the presidential election cycle and so many other elections will happen. Um, That term gets used a lot. But if you want folks to understand what that really means historically to the church, I thought Nathan did a fantastic job of bringing that together and putting it into one you know, 750, 800 word document. And it's yeah, very, agreed. very, yeah, very, even, even with uh, bullet points, which yeah. is still helpful just to kind of really at a glance, this is what an evangelical is historically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. So anyway, all those, uh, both of those pieces from uh, helpful theological thinking there and something that, that will be thought provoking for you as well. All right, Laura. So let's get to our history moment. We teased it a moment ago. Um, very, like I say, I've seen, Photos from friends who have um, either friends who are at or they have children who are at Passion um, this week. And and in our own family, my my daughter is at CrossCon in Louisville and the, the missions conference there. But I think our history moment is going to help us to see that that conferences and, and these events for college students, it's not something new. It's been around a while. Yes, that's right. And I, I didn't intend for this to be the case, but apparently 1957 is is our lucky year mm-hmm. today because <laughs> the Southern Baptist Music Conference was yeah, also about that. in 1957. Mm-hmm. So I am holding here a, a story from the January 2nd, 1957 edition of Baptist Press. All right. And it's a recap of the Southern Baptist Student World Missions Congress, which had been held uh, in Nashville uh, just just prior to this. So I I assume sometime in late 1956, although the article doesn't say exactly when it was. But students heard from a number of speakers, including Billy Graham, who said, who told the students, we're having possibly the greatest religious inquiry on the college campus we have seen in the history of education in the United States. So late 50s was apparently a very, a very, um, active time on college campuses. Of course, he, he would have been very involved in Youth for Christ in those That's times. Right. Yeah. That's right. 
Uh, Tennessee Governor Frank Clement at the time also welcomed the students and was was there at the event. Uh, he said, being governor is a great honor, but being a Christian is so much greater an honor that there is no comparison. That's mm. what he told the students. Mm. And they heard from a representative from Minnesota who had also a U.S. representative who'd also been a missionary to China. Mm. And they heard from the executive committee's own Porter Ralph. Okay. Uh, who at the, he was at the time the executive secretary, what now we would call the president and CEO of the okay. SBCEC. And Porter Routh told the group, world missions is like bifocal glasses. It must give you the ability to see the person next door, your roommate, but it also must give you the perspective to see the ends of the earth. Okay. All right. That's a really good one. I, yeah. I think you should read that one more time because that, that could just fly by someone. So okay. re read that one more this time. This is Porter Routh talking. Yeah. Yeah. World missions is like bifocal glasses. It must give you the ability to see the person next door, your roommate, but it also must give you the perspective to see to the ends of the earth. It's mm, good. And so as we uh, see our students there at CrossCon and, and at Passion um, this this these last couple of days, it's encouraging to think that even in 1957, right after mm -hmm. the, the turn of the new year, there were students um, on fire for Christ and talking about going to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we mentioned those in the minute I, I hear you say that again about passion and cross con, just want to make sure we know there are lots of conferences out there. I saw, I saw photos of Shane Pruitt speaking to a group of students. Oh yeah, um, that's right. I saw that too. Yeah. Yep, it's fantastic. So, um, uh, so lots of, of wonderful things happening for our students during this break, lots of discipleship and equipping going on there and, mm -hmm. um, praying that the Lord would call up this generation and, and send them out. Um, to to accomplish the Great Commission and to be faithful in doing that. So I think, Laura, we, since it's the first week of the year, we're doing kind of a two-for-one special. Is that right here in our history moment? We, we sure. Have, there's we, one we, more, <laughs> uh, also from 1957, and it okay. was right next to this other one. And so I thought, well, if you're okay with it, I was going to yeah. read this one too. It's kind of our after, after Christmas special right here. Yeah. And they're yeah. both kind of missions related. And so yeah. this one was good too. Um this talks about the fact that in 1956, a record amount was given to support the work of Southern Baptists. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was also announced by Porter Ralph because he was the treasurer at the time right. of right. uh, the executive committee. And so the record uh, amount was $20 million, $20,942,547. That was a record at the time for 1956 for all giving uh to Southern Baptist causes. And the largest share of that, 60% of it, was to support international missions. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty cool. And so in, in 20, in this last year, we celebrated what, 192 million? Yeah. It's gone up considerably since yeah. 1956. Yep. So it's amazing to think about how the Lord has blessed our cooperative work together. It is amazing. And we are certainly cool. praying that he continues to do that and that that we respond faithfully um, as we we work forward into 2024. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for SBC this week, Laura. Thank you for those stories. Um, we're just just barely getting started here in 2024. We know there are some big things, Lord willing, on the horizon for this year that we're keeping our eye on, and we hope that you'll keep listening along with us here at SBC this week. That's right. These stories and lots more available at baptistpress.com. Thanks for listening.